This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy. I'm the producer at Westwards. And today I'm talking to my good friend, Lowell Tarling, uh, about the art of ghostwriting. So, Lowell, how, I'm in your beautiful office here in, uh, in Katoomba. How are you today? You well? Yes, I'm well, thank you. Well, All the better for seeing you. Oh, thank you. That's kind of you to say. Um, I'm in this beautiful uh, study of yours, which is book-lined and poster-lined. You're an artist as well as a writer. I... I, I I think if you go to our YouTube channel, you'll find a um, a reading of your book, 1967, This Is It, which was written in the mid-90s, early 90s. Uh, 1990 was its first publication. Yeah, yeah. and uh, when I first met you, that was sort of... We're kind of... We're, we're related by marriage, and I guess people... Um, it's worth letting people know. I I actually, probably doesn't matter. <laughs> it's of no consequence to anyone. But um, we met... Uh, your place in St Ives and you gave me a copy of that book and I, at that stage I was I just wanted to be a writer and so I was so in awe of what you'd achieved and I remain in awe of it. A lot of what you've written, you've written a lot of biographies, you've wrote two books about Martin Sharp, you've written about Tiny Tim, you've written about... Dry as a Bone. Dry as a Bone, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Cliff Young I worked with. Um... Cliff Young as in the, the ultra marathon runner. Yeah. Oh, right, the guy in the gumboots. Yeah, and yeah. then... Um... And Heather Turland, who won marathon gold in the Commonwealth Games. Oh yeah, yeah. And she was thirty-seven years old. And a mum. And she was a, and a mum. Yeah. Of four children. Yeah, right. Beat the Beechworth Bakery, like that was with Tom O'Toole. So there might be a, there might be the um, <laughs> the opportunity to have a conversation at some point about writing about you know how you choose something to write about as a non-fiction thing. I mean, the Beechworth Bakery that that seems like a, a kind of interesting thing to choose what you're just there one day and went i need to know no, the how they make these incredible pies no the publisher asks me oh right okay yeah right okay well and and sometimes the individual asks me and um i don't like that because i don't know that it's going to get published right so i'm taking money off somebody with no end in sight but the publisher says hey i've got this good idea and uh okay where you go well that might be a, a conversation for another time about commissioned work and as a writer of course that's that's fantastic when someone comes to you and goes would you write a book we're going to give you some money that's that's the dream right um well it depends what the subject is <laughs> um okay but let's talk today about about ghost writing um because i mean i suppose there's a couple of my understanding is there's a couple of uh different kinds of ghost writing there's a ghost writing where you're acknowledged as being the person who helped that person write that book. But then there's the ghostwriting where you're completely invisible. Have you done those ones? Um, because I've wanted my name taken off, yes. Oh, okay. Well, why, yeah. why was that? I mean, without giving us an example of what the book was. Oh, because well, because, to... because it was going to get massive litigation for defamation. Right. And I just said, I'll do the job, but you're not putting my name to it. Right. And, and did they get litigated? Did they ever. Right. Are you able to tell us or you would rather not? 
Oh, no, I'll tell you, this is one of the Azaria books. Oh, about the uh, Chamberlain family. Yeah, it was the one, um, it was one of those, yeah. But I'd, I've, ghost, I've, I've, I've actually ghosted three books on the Azaria case. Mm-hmm. One didn't make it in print, and that was for Phil Ward. It was what Lindy and her church. And the other one was I did Michael's book, and then the other one was the one that I told you about that mm. that um, was three-quarters of a million dollars um, that I didn't have to pay. So I guess when you're doing something like that where you go, I'll ghostwrite, but I don't want to be responsible for what is said, I, I suppose the there's contractual things that need to be fairly carefully, you know, they're pretty expensive signatures if you don't sign the right thing, aren't they? Oh, I guess so, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I guess, so I guess that's the first thing to say to anyone who's thinking about ghostwriting. Let's let's say that you have the ability and the someone has the interest. You need to get the legal side of that stuff right, don't you? Well, what I did with that one that had litigation was I kept what I had written, and and so if it, if it did go to court, I'd say I didn't write that one. This is the one I wrote mm-hmm. because he just really revved it up and he said these people buried the baby and did all sorts of things and he named them and I couldn't have couldn't afford that yeah and so he he got it was got ugly for him on, on got the... ugly for him and also you you, get, you can be um the the um Griffin press the printer so if you have anything to do with the defamation um thing if you if you're the publisher or the or the printer right as, as well as even the secretary that seems really interesting to me that that you as the person who wrote the words based on someone's opinion and story can sort of can get away with that so to speak and the, the guy who actually just put presses the button on starting the printing press can get in trouble I guess that's why we say that the legals need to be right I think that was a Dorothy Hewitt case um, said the president this is maybe in the mid Mid eighties. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Cool. Um, so, have you ever done a, a ghost written a book where your name wasn't on the cover, not because you elected to take it off for those reasons, but because the person who was commissioning you wanted to be seen as the writer of that book? Uh, uh, Possibly. Possibly. I'm actually, yeah. Oh, yeah, there was one. Yes, there was one I remember. And then there was another one. I can't remember whether the name was on or not. I lost interest in them Mm. because they weren't subjects that I warmed to. Mm. And so once I'd done the job, they drop in a copy. So I've got copies of them, but I don't even look at them. And you've done about 100 of them, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, Because, and I guess one of the things we talk about on on this podcast, the Mini Masterclass podcast, is the craft of writing and you know certain approaches to writing and all those sorts of things and one thing we often come back to is how you motivate yourself as a writer to keep going with with things that are hard work and, and writing is hard work it's hard on the back of your neck it's hard on the, the frontal lobe of your brain it's hard on your fingers like it, it's 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 it can be a hard job right so you drink so you drink <laughs> well that's how you get around that is that right oh, okay. well it keeps you going that's you what know. i'm doing wrong i'm not drinking it yeah, yeah maybe. it does keep you going <laughs> yeah. but um I, I guess what i'm the point i'm getting to is that if you're if you're if someone as a as a writer is a bit of a narcissist if you like what they and we all are in a sense as writers 
we wanted, if we're doing, doing all that hard work, we want to see our name on the cover. Did, is it hard to motivate yourself? Do you just have to go, this is a job that's paying me this much money to write these words one after the next? Is it really a matter of shifting the, the creative mind a little bit one way or the other? Well, not for me. Not at all. What, why is that? Um, because, because it's not what I wanted to write. So I don't have a... I haven't got a horse in the race, you right. know. And so I really don't mind. And they want my name on the cover because I've written a lot of other books that sort of help them somehow. And uh, But um, I've asked some of them to leave my name off, so... I don't know. It's just what I what I've had to do to survive. So it's, it's in a sense it's a little bit like being a journalist, isn't it? Where you like just on a, on a on a longer scale, where you're sent out to do a job, and they go go out and find out about X, and you go, well, okay, I don't actually care about X, but that's my job. I have to do it. Is that that's the approach you have to take at times? Well, yeah, but when I started writing, I had a very good selling book. It was the Taylor's Troubles, the Penguin book. Right. And it ran for three editions at least, five actually altogether. And it was on the um, recommended reading, reading list for schools and so on. And it just didn't earn any money. Mm. And I just looked at it and I just thought, I can't. You know, there's room in Australia for about ten well-paid novelists. And I, I, I don't think I'm... I kind of like, you know, I see myself more as a biographer than a novelist. I mean, I've written, I've written three or four novels, and but I'm just feel I'm lucky to have pulled them off, you know. Um, I don't see myself that way, and uh, I just didn't want my family to. Well, I wanted to pay the bills, and so whatever, whatever, whatever it took, I'd I'd, I'd done. I've written for Penthouse. I've written. I'll write anything. You know, the, the, the classic it, gun for hire. I'm just, yeah. What did Moliere say about writings like prostitution? First, you do it for love, then you do it for a few close friends, and then you do it for money. <laughs> so, sorry. And you're, and you're well down the track. You're well down the path of opening your own brothel, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're a madam now. Well, it's kind of a little bit different because now I'm, I'm really, I'm retired. Right. And uh, so I don't have to look for jobs and. And I can write whatever I want to, so um, yeah. Do you ever do you ever look at this and and just go? Yeah, you, know, you look back on your on your career as a as a gun for hire writer, and kind of pinch yourself a bit. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but you kind of go, "Wow, I actually got to, I got out of teaching and managed to make a career and support a family on the back of writing stuff." Is that? Uh, yeah, I reckon I was I was bloody lucky. Yeah. I mean, but I edited the franchising magazine and I edited another business magazine and I did a lot of newsletters. I've written on time management, all those. They're really dull subjects. Mm. So how do you, how do you, I guess it's, I guess I've probably already asked this question in a sense, but how do you, how do you do that? How do you write? Because I, I personally really struggle to get to the desk if, it, if I don't care about the subject. Um, well, um, um, well, I don't know what the answer is. I, I get a commission, so the Beechworth Bakery, 
So the publisher phones up and then I ask for half the money up front and a percentage, but that'll go against the royalties, mm -hmm. and then half when they've accepted the manuscript. So they send me a cheque and that kind of puts me in their debt. I kind of dread receiving the cheque because once you've got the cheque, they phone up and say, how are you going? And you've got to do the work. And yeah. you've got to do the work. Right. Um, some people, the Beechworth Bakery was good because he was... He was a kind of a motivating guy. He was, he was interesting. And I always run tape. And then some other ones, um, yeah, they're really hard to do. They're really hard to do. So something like the Beechworth Bakery, I mean, maybe not that as that exact example, but something like that. How often is it for someone who sees it as being a, something that's going to sell copies and make them money? And how often is it for, uh, like a personal... I hate using the term because it's got connotations, but a vanity project where they want to write something that preserves their, their family history or their business history or their local history or whatever. Oh, about 80% of the time I'd say they're going to sell them. Yeah. And how they sell them is their motivational speakers. Okay. So I did Peter Davidson who saved eight lives in the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race yep. back then. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and I met him in, in Darling Harbour in one of those corporate places and he was a speaker down the front. Everyone's wearing suits except me and him. I'm just dressed as I normally do. And he was actually wearing his um, rescue, um, right. helicopter rescue gear. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, that, and was, that was from the same year that um, uh, Rob Mundell wrote his book about that. Was it that year that yeah. when... Eight people. How many? How many died that year? It was six or eight or twelve or something? It's like a significant number. They saved it? about twelve people. Yeah. He saved eight, and then a helicopter came from Canberra and, and did the rest. Oh uh, yeah, because of the Winston Churchill. I think he saved some of the people off the Winston Churchill. Or, mm. Yeah, I'm I, not sure. I can't remember. Because I researched this. I can get the I can get the book and <laughs> get the numbers right if you want. No, that's fine. Okay, so um, you know, so he's so he's going. Can you write me a book that I can get public? Get no, the pu no, the publisher, publisher? Right. phones me up and says. Do this book for this guy, and then he sells them in the hundreds after his talks. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and do you always do you have a preference, and do you have a say in whether you know whether or not you get paid as a as a uh, lump sum payment or as a royalty thing? Uh, well, I get half. I get, I get an advance, and then I take half the advance, um, which would be you know like five thousand, and then. And then at the end of it, they give me the other five. And then after that, I get royalties and public lending right and all those things once I've paid off that advance. Yeah, so do you ever have to... Do you, are you ever asked to do the ones where you go, well, no, we're going to maintain all the royalties, all the, all the lending rights, all that stuff. You, you, we just need you to write the words. Oh, well, I've done that, but not... That was my idea, not theirs. Okay. I've kind of gone, well, I'll just write the words, but I never want to see you again because I, <laughs> I hate hate writing about it. But, yes, I'll do it. Don't worry. We won't ask for an example because that would be rather telling. But um, who's, who's the most interesting person you've, you've written about? Because I see, I see I'm looking at your pic, your, all the posters on your wall here. I know you haven't, I know you didn't interview Franz Kafka, Anna S. Nin or, or Beckett, um, or Mark Twain for that matter, but... Uh, who's the most interesting person you've actually worked with? But I have got Mark Twain's autograph and I have got Tiny Tim, um, Nick Cave's autograph. The most interesting person would have to be Tiny Tim. Yeah, but well, that wasn't a ghost. That was, I wrote his biography. What was it about Tiny Tim? I, I mean, 
Anyone who knows Lowell will know that Tiny Tim is... It doesn't take too long in a conversation before Tiny Tim comes up. Um, <laughs> what, and I know that Martin Sharp was... He, he was very enamoured with Tiny Tim's story as well. And you were good friends with Martin. So yeah. what's the Tiny Tim fascination about? Well, apart from the fact that... I'll play you some songs like Or one song before you go. And then you, you might... Then I'll kind get of, it, because he had a booming you, big voice. You might get it, yeah, the booming big voice. And um, I suppose there's, a, there's a, a lot of different things, eccentricity, but but the thing about Tiny that sets him apart from just about anybody else is, is fame, just pure fame. I mean, the idea of just walking down the street with somebody who's that famous... Now, if you walk down the street with Eric Clapton or George Harrison or something, what the people would say is, was that Eric Clapton or... I reckon that was George, you know. Well, George Harrison is probably a poor example because okay. it would be very remarkable <laughs> if you walked down the street with him, but no, I take your point. <laughs> Elvis and George Harrison, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. um, but with Tiny, everybody knows instantly who he is. And so you've just got this rush of people wanting a piece of him and you know damn well that they, ha they don't like him very much. They right. say, can I have an autograph? It's for my daughter. Right. They, and, and it's just ridiculous. Was it because, it was, because what he did was seen as, um, by many as novelty and a bit naff? People are reluctant to go, well, I really like Tiny Tim. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. There's probably a lot of different reasons, but he, he, he is just unbelievably famous. And that just stops. I've walked through Bondi Junction with him once and we had to slip into a chemist and um, just to get away from the, the crowds because I had a car so I had to drive him back to his place and, um, and then we duck into the chemist and, and a woman's serving somebody and the minute she saw Tiny she just stopped in mid-sentence and just walked straight over to where we were and Tiny of course um, started explaining the difference between the different cosmetics and that Elizabeth Arden was the one that you should be using and no, not that one. And, was and cosmetics a particular interest of his? Or was, was oh, just, yeah. Was just, okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I went to his place in New York, he had, he had um, a table. He didn't have much, but he had a table the size of my desk or nearly as big as my desk, and it was chocker full of cosmetics. Ukulele, Bible, cosmetics. That was it. That was his. Wasn't a lot. He didn't have all this tiny Tim stuff that I've got. All these posters and all this. Did he have Lowell tiling paintings everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> I did one of him once, and I gave it to him, and he, uh, and he gave it to Martin. <laughs> right. So just to come back, we'll wrap up in a tick. But just to come back to the the ghostwriting thing, is, is it? Is there a way that someone who's interested in doing the ghostwriting thing can actually, uh, I don't, <laughs> get a uh, get a foot in the door of this, or is it really a matter of having some stuff and waiting for people to come to you? Well, the the thing is with writing is a lot of people want to, do, like I did, you want to do your own thing. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do 1967 or all that sort of stuff. That's not going to pay any bills, mm -hmm. and a lot of people want to write their own poetry. Mm. And that's not going to pay anything. Nobody wants to buy your book of poetry, whoever you are. Mm. You know, unless you're, unless of course you're on the school syllabus. That's a different. But, but even, that's a, even a great poet like Les Murray didn't sell that many books, right? That's right. Mm. But you get on the school syllabus. That's a different deal. But and everyone's got all these books of poems they want. 
But the thing that every that you can usually sell is a book, um, how to, right, something, mm-hmm. how to play guitar. Oh, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's not a good one, but how to, um, how to um, deal with um, your child that's got Asperger's, mm-hmm. and um, then people will, will type in Asperger's and they'll realise that there aren't too many books on it. In fact, your book is one of six or mm. one of two but you know your book of poems you know <laughs> where does it end well, yeah. there you are number six million and <laughs> yeah, right right yeah. yeah but people are interested in how-tos definitely and a lot of a lot of those people that i ghosted for were literally doing how-to and so they they, they know the stuff they know how to do it but then but they've Unlike a lot of people, they have come to terms with the fact that writing isn't necessarily their, their best skill, so they need somebody who can do that, right? Oh, well, a couple of people have gone to their house and they were rich enough. One had a Ferrari. Right. He didn't have one book in the house. Yeah. In fact, he said to me about, about the book that I'd ghosted for him, he said, oh, bugger, now you've, you've written a book I've got to read. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know who you're talking about. I'm not going to say it, say it on, on, on air. Um, I'm going to ask you later, I don't know if I was right. Um, and Heather Turlin's husband said to me, um, uh, well, um, there was some stuff in there that might have been indiscreet or that I didn't know that he'd like, and so I mentioned it to him. He said, well, well, Lowell, who cares? I'm never going to read it. He didn't read. Right. In fact, the kids came back from school and um, and instead of you know, studying as your kids would and my kids, they were actually abseiling up the side of their house. They were a really physical family. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to wrap up, um, you you and I did some something with a, another chap called Oliver Morley Sattler, um, which was a lot of fun. It was a, a musical slash biography stage thing about Henry Lawson. Mm. Um I'm only asking this question because I'm a mad Henry Lawson fan as well. What that was a labour of love for you, that one, wasn't it? Oh yeah. What is it about Lawson that really Because here's a here's a guy who I mean the story I've told before, I think, on this podcast, but I know you know this story is you know, the way he would go out and, and write a write a poem that or re, or transcribe a poem that he'd written on a napkin and then give it to a publican and that was how he paid for his beer towards the end of his life and you know now all these now all these napkins are turning up from all these all these restored pubs all over western new south wales um so he was in a sense quite a he was a bit of a gun for hire in his own way as a as a poet um what is it about lawson that floats your boat um well i suppose he's written the best short story that I've ever read. I assume we're talking about The Drover's Wife. I think you assumed right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's... I, I talk about this, this story a lot because I, th- I think this is one of the great... Yeah, uh, it's... It's one of those books... One of those stories that... The hype is well-deserved, I guess is what I'm saying. Certainly. And, um, and some of his poems. But... Um, but the th- I tend to get interested in when I move into an area. I tend to be interested in the artists and the poets 
from that area. Mm. So when when we lived in Tawamara, I got really into Grace Cosington Smith, the artist, mm. because she lived in Kewingai. Well, she was dead, but she so there was a house in Kewingai Avenue, and I so I I was and Lawson, of course, was a um, Mount Victoria Blue Mountains writer. In fact, in fact, he started writing in. Um, Mount Victoria, when he went for that place, it, it's disgraceful the way it's been neglected. Henry Lawson's walk and just looking over the Canimbala Valley, yeah. and then he started writing. Then he went down to Sydney and he saw Mum, who was a feminist, and she told him to get a proper job, I think, and so he went back and painted with his father. But and then you, and when you see say painted, painted houses, painted, painted houses, not painted right portraits, yeah. <laughs> painted houses. Yeah. You can still see, you know, a house that he painted. Yeah, and yeah, in Mount Vic, yeah, right. yeah, and his father's um, um, grave is at the foot of Mount York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 we, <coughs> during this this show, we talked about this the the fact that the Blue Mountains really was a watershed for him in all sorts of ways. You know, on one side was his father and the and the the Western Tablelands and and that sort of graft of the rural and and you know the frontier if you like almost and then the other side of blue mountains down the hill was his mum the socialist and yes the... yes <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah well, but when you live in that area you and, and you you can see when i first heard of henry lawson i i was born in london so it came out and and they were teaching us that in, in school and i was under the impression that all this stuff was happening in burke or well, he did go to Burke. Mm. That wasn't a good example. In Broken Hill or somewhere, somewhere out Super back. Super remote. Out yeah, back, yeah. you know. And then to realise that it was here, that kind of wow, you know. And then I started, went from there, I suppose. Yeah, it was Blue Mountains and Lithgow and, of course, mm. um, Galgong and Warren and Ningen and those sorts of fairly yeah. close. Really. Yeah. And then you were interested and that kind of helped and Oliver, Ollie was, yeah, yeah, he's a, so he was he's a remarkable all... musician who wrote some amazing songs for that show. So, yeah. yeah. Look, Lowell Tarling, thank you so much for talking to us about uh, about ghostwriting. We'll talk again soon. Good. 